hate Whamageddon. I'm not Bruce Willis. Whamma, get out of here. I don't want to do it. I refuse. No. Can't, shan't, won't make me. Hello and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Denby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. be pleased to know I survived my trip to Southeast Asia. Now, that said, it was arguably more of a close-run thing than you might imagine. On the day we flew back, England was in the midst of a named storm, Fergus apparently, so the Germans called it Walter. This storm caused 124 kilometres an hour or 77 mile an hour winds in Leeds, so I imagine the wind speeds in Manchester weren't too far short of that, and that very much affected our journey back, even if we didn't know it at the time. Imagine, if you will, sitting in the middle of an aeroplane, so with no access to window views. All we have to go on is the in-seat entertainment system, and no knowledge of weather patterns or anything else. The pilot had said, there's a bit of wind in Manchester, but gave no further details. So, we're tracking our journey, and we fly over Huddersfield without issue. An easy path to Manchester Airport, you'd think. But no. We continue on our course, fly over Bury, and head towards Preston. We're looking at the route plan going... Surely we need to turn left at some point. Our expected time of arrival gets slowly later and later. We fly over Preston and then do a huge loop to the right. Oh, it's a holding pattern, suggests Laura. Meanwhile, I'm there thinking, wouldn't it be ironic if we were diverted to Glasgow for some reason? We did not divert to Glasgow. Maybe we should have done. We did a big loop over Lancashire and then a smaller loop over Bolton and Darwin. If we'd have been near a window, we'd have probably been able to see our apartment building in the distance. But then the pilot seems to have made a decision. The expected time of arrival drops to eight minutes and we head in a straight line over Stockport to the airport. That was the most eight minutes I've ever had in an aeroplane. I'm not quite sure what it was the most of. Possibly interesting would be a good adjective, but when used in the sense of may you live in interesting times. It was by far the bumpiest, roughest, most rollercoastery eight minutes I've ever had on an aeroplane. Looking at the cockpit view on the in-flight ENT system was not good for the nerves. Sometimes knowledge is not power. The atmosphere inside the plane was quite weird. It was kind of like a reverential hush. It all felt very calm. And yet, and yet. When we landed, and it was not a smooth or straight landing by any means, although interestingly not the hardest landing we'd had on our trip, I was genuinely expecting some applause from the passengers. But there was nothing, apart from a palpable sense of relief. The airport was strangely quiet when we walked through the terminal. It felt like there was nobody else there, which for an international airport on a Saturday evening felt weird. By the time we reached Manchester Airport's public transport interchange, though, we'd learned two things. Firstly, neither the railway nor the tram to the airport were running due to separate incidents further up the line that had stopped all runnings. The tram had had a tree fall on the power lines. It wasn't reported what the train issue was, so it to say they'd almost all been cancelled. Secondly, we may have landed because we were a large intercontinental plane. A smaller trans-European jet before us had aborted its landing just a few feet above the runway and diverted to London Heathrow. 
We got a taxi back to the flat in the pouring rain. Possibly the most logical £40 taxi ride I'd ever taken. I ought to talk about the trip, but I don't think that this is the podcast for that. I've not long had an out-of-schedule session with my therapist to talk about matters arising from it, so I'm going to leave it a bit to soak. That sounds more negative than it is. The trip just brought a couple of issues to mind about who I am and how I react to stimuli. It's nothing problematic. Aside from that, I've not done a lot since my last non-pre-recorded episode. I did have another meet-up with the asexual group in Manchester, where we played board games. That was pretty cool. And I met up with another asexual podcaster, completely by chance. They, and I'm going to call them them they, because I forgot to ask what their pronouns were, and I wouldn't have remembered even if I had, run a D&D podcast with asexual vibes, called, obviously, because it's such an easy identity to pun with, Deck of Many Aces. They're up to 65 episodes at the time of this pod, but they recently had a Story So Far episode, so there's an easy end to the storyline right there. This pod is scheduled for release in the week between Christmas and New Year. This is traditionally a dead time in Western life, where time becomes arbitrary and vague, and the majority of people just take time off too. And see, here, this is where I'm conscious that I'm not a standard member of Western society. Like, I have a very small family, who themselves are very isolationist and like their own company. And, whisper it loudly, they're also actually really boring. My mother might well listen to this pod, but she'll probably agree anyway. But also, because we're a very small family, we had a habit of meeting up quite regular anyway during my childhood, so there's absolutely no pressure or expectation to do the same at Christmas. Consequently, we don't. My uncle and my mother like each other, but not enough to travel the entire height of Wales to meet up for reasons outside of emergency or chaos. Anyway, they both have their own immediate familial issues at the moment. Plus, of course, I don't drive, and this country's public transport shuts down over Christmas anyway. I'm writing this pod before Christmas Day itself, but I don't imagine my Christmas Day will be anything particularly notable. It's a more awkward Sunday, that's all it is for me. I'll have almost certainly have spent it online or writing blog posts and eating cheese sandwiches, assuming I can get hold of the bread. It's just not very interesting or consequential for me. And I was in the office today, the day I'm writing this pod, and... It's Thursday the 21st, and I overheard someone in another department, technically a completely different organisation, but that would be too revealing about where I work, have a conversation about Christmas dinners and whether Yorkshire puddings belong on them. And I'm there all thinking, you're all planning Christmas dinners in that much depth? But then I remember that I'm not the target market for that sort of thing anyway. But I truly hope you all had a wonderful and loving Christmas in the company of people you care for. I'll have spent it with Laura, who will have worked it anyway, but I'm sure there will have been beer in the evening. And whiskey. Last time I went up to Glasgow, I came back with a bottle of whiskey from the Ardmerkin Brewery in remembrance of my hike across Great Britain ending in that part of the world. And at the time of the pod, we've drunk half of it. I'd get some more next time I'm up, but the likelihood is I'll be going straight from there to another trip anyway. The next Traverse Travel Blogger Conference is being held at the start of February in Tbilisi, the capital of the country of Georgia. I've never been to Georgia, and that's one of the reasons my friends think I ought to go to the conference. It's always been on my list, along with neighbouring Azerbaijan and Armenia, but I didn't anticipate going there in winter, which restricts my options somewhat. The other thing that's restricting me is Azerbaijan has more or less closed its land borders, officially because of Covid, but possibly to prevent an influx of Russians escaping army conscription. It is possible to exit the country overland, just not to enter it, but as they've cancelled the trains and the buses, this involves an awful lot of admin and hassle and taxis to cross it and the flights from Baku to Tbilisi are only about 50 quid at the moment, so it doesn't seem worth it. I am fully aware of the, oh, but we shouldn't be flying such small distances view, 
but like it's longer, more awkward and more expensive to go overland and I only have two weeks. So, you know, take it up with the Azerbaijani government, not with me. My main irk with the trip is that I don't get the chance to visit Abkhazia, mainly because visiting a seaside resort, even that far south, in winter, won't be an exciting experience. We won't talk about the politics of the situation and or the environment. Laura thinks I should target having visited 100 countries by the time I reach 50 years old. I'm currently on 87, I think, with the caveat that it depends on how you define Kosovo. I'm a data analyst, it's why I generally don't count countries. Far too many questions of definition. It's an interesting target. There's three places in the world I have intentions to visit that I could encompass about five or six countries in one trip, but they would all involve intense and specific trips, and I don't think I could do more than one in the timescale. There are, though, a couple of countries I could easily visit for a long weekend or a week-long adventure. Sadly, one of them is Norway. It'd be cheaper to visit Kiribati. Maybe. Anyway, it's Christmas. I should do a pod about this time of year. Now, according to my podcast listening stats, my biggest audience is in the USA. Hello! I'm low-key surprised by this, but in a way it wouldn't surprise me, because clearly the USA has the biggest podcast listenership audience by volume in the world. My second biggest audience is the UK, which makes more sense in a way because I'm British and I tend not to hide that fact with my wording and style. And for those of you who read my transcripts, my spellings. Now, my flatmate is American. She's originally from Minnesota, a state that I've never been to, but which I've been told I'd probably appreciate. Except in winter. But that's not the point. Rather, Laura is very fond of Christmas. Our Christmas tree went up on the 9th of November. November. It would have been earlier, but she was overly conscious of our flat being visible from the apartments over there. People we don't know, have never met, and who have no idea of our existence. And she was concerned that if she'd put the Christmas tree up while I was away at the end of October, people would have judged her. I don't know. Anyway, her local radio station in Minneapolis changes every year to Christmas music in mid-November. As an aside, this whole concept of radio stations changing format confuses me entirely. There's pretty much no such thing as formats of UK radio stations. I want to do a whole pod on local radio at some point, but I fear it may end up being a rant against capitalism. But that's by the by. Suffice to say, in broad terms, there's no such thing as format, and the vast majority of local radio stations in the UK play Top 40, or the best music of the 80s, 90s and today, which comes to the same thing, just with added cheese. But what her playing of Cool 108 has shown to me is that there's a large difference between US Christmas music and UK Christmas music. I don't know if that's because just for longer than my lifetime there's been a fetish in the UK for Christmas adjacent music, or if the US as a rule prefers older music, but there is an overlap. That overlap is Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney and Last Christmas by Wham. Cool 108's playlist is much more trad pop. Think originals as the likes of Sleigh Ride, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, I Saw Mummy Kissing Santa Claus, and of course, White Christmas. There's not a Slade, a Wizard or a Jonah Louie to be heard. Your mileage may vary on which is better, it's just something that takes some getting used to. Indeed, back in 2012 there was a TV programme dedicated to deciding what the UK's, well it was called the nation's favourite Christmas song, was. There's only about three or four on that list that would be heard on Cool 108, and a further one that would never be played in the format that we know it in because they prefer the original of Little Drummer Boy, rather than the version that we have with David Bowie, where he doesn't sing it. Hello, it's Burford Backpacker from the Future here, just to say I forgot completely about Whamageddon, which is this ridiculous game that's been going on for years, where you have to last from midnight on the 1st of December to 11.59pm on the 24th of December, without knowingly hearing Last Christmas by Wham. 
only the original version counts, remixes and cover versions are safe and fine. And announcers have got into trouble at football grounds and the like for playing it over the speakers. It's taken right seriously. Which leads open the thought though, as remixes don't count, you could take the original version, rip the audio off, leaving just the instrumental. So people will listen and go, ah bugger, but then 20 seconds later go, hang on a minute. Anyway, back to the already recorded episode. As a vague aside, my favourite Christmas songs are ones never played in either country, because uber niche. I've not heard Santa Claus is on the Dole by Spitting Image on the radio since it was released, and I've never heard I Hate Christmas Parties by Matthew Thiessen and the Earthquakes outside of my own computer. And before anyone with an expert knowledge of Christian pop music tries to correct me, yes, that was how they were billed on that particular Reese, rather than as Reliant K. But I digress, obviously. The other difference is that Christmas songs seem to stop, with regard to music anyway, at 11.59pm on Christmas Day. Whereas we in the UK will have Christmas-related songs still in rotation until New Year. And there seems to be a vibe of taking Christmas decorations down as soon as Christmas is over, or by New Year at least. Whereas we'll tend to keep them up until Twelfth Night. After all, the Twelve Days of Christmas is a Christmas song. In fact, there's some old English folklore that suggests Christmas decorations should be kept up until the 1st of February. Or to be specific, Candlemas, February the 2nd. On the one hand, this feels excessive. On the other hand, in a way, Christmas feels like it's at the wrong time of year. Obviously, Christmas Day is December the 25th, for reasons, and the solstice is a number of small number of days before that anyway. But certainly here in the UK, and I believe in most of the rest of the world, you know, outside the tropics, the middle of winter and middle of summer, climactically, aren't solstice adjacent, but somewhere around a month later, maybe up to a week or two beyond that. Certainly February feels like the most bleak month in the UK, and our summer school holidays are in, well, in England they're in August, Scotland's a tad earlier, but that's more because of daylight than temperature. So I'd say 1st of February is around the most wintry time here, so having fairy lights and shiny tinsel covering the house around then might make the season a bit more pleasant. But not mistletoe, though. I've never kissed anyone under the mistletoe. Obviously. And of course, songs like Sleigh Ride and Jingle Bells don't mention Christmas at all. Not that we have anywhere near enough snow in this country to have anything remotely resembling a viable sleigh ride, even in early February, but they strike me as songs better suited to that time of year than this one. The bleakest winter I can recall in recent times was 2010. We had snow up to my shin, and I didn't see a work colleague for six weeks because she lived down a farm track in deepest Staffordshire, somewhere near Alton Towers, and the gritters couldn't get down her road, so it was too icy to drive. Where I lived in Nottinghamshire was at the bottom of a big hill, and it was genuinely dangerous to walk. I'm sure you could have skied down it, or at least tobogganed, if it weren't for the really sharp bend halfway down. I mean, maybe that adds to the appeal. Don't know. Winter sports are generally something I'd never do. Had I been the same person but Scandinavian, I might might have dabbled in cross-country skiing, but oh my, that's a sport that requires good muscles. This is not a pod episode about winter sports. Is there a reason for that? Same reason, I've never done a pod about travelling with a family, despite the latter having been penciled in since 2018. Rather, this is a pod about Christmas that was cobbled together at the last moment, as you can tell. I talked a little earlier about Christmas decorations, and specifically the tree. Now over here there's always that discussion about, so shall we get a real tree this year? And no, you'll get an artificial tree like you always do, because it's much easier to construct, you can keep it forever, and you won't be finding pine needles in your carpet in June. Another good reason for laminate flooring, by the way, it's easier to vacuum. Dancing barefoot on soft carpet with your loved one might be more romantic, but it's a lot more precarious. Not that I'd know about that sort of thing. Anyway, the tree... Traditionally, decorated with tinsel, a fire hazard, fairy lights, a potential fire hazard, and weird ornaments that when I was growing up were invariably big balls, ooh, uh, 
small wooden figures in cars, and coins made of chocolate, which, if you over-decorated, could be a falling hazard, and possibly a fire hazard, in at least two ways. The balls, or baubles, would come in very different sizes, be generally of a single but shiny colour, like red, and, well, I mean, they look quite glittery and cool, but I never quite knew what they had to do with Christmas. There's usually also something on the top of the tree, an angel or a star for the more religious, a fairy for the more secular. I'm surprised it's not an elf on the shelf just watching your every move. Maybe that'll come. The tree that's up in my apartment, which I'm not in control of, has no tinsel or any of that encumbrance. It only has fairy lights. Three sets. It's next to a power socket with two plug holes. It always seems like a faff to unplug every night, but it looks nice, that's for sure. There's no other decoration in the apartment. When I was younger, I was used to tinsel hanging over doorways and from ceilings in dubious places, wreaths on the doors, and excessive amounts of plastic holly. To be fair, I still see this in the wild today. Some pubs in Manchester have been covered with the stuff on the outside, and everything is all green and red. If I'm being honest, I suspect they just repurposed the stuff they used to commemorate Remembrance Sunday. Now at this point, let me introduce someone who's been on my podcast before, albeit only in passing. Of all people, I've got a couple of short contributions in this episode from my very own mother. Here she talks a little about Christmas decorations when she was growing up in the 1950s. Call it living history. We always used to have, my mum used to start, and everyone's mum used to start putting decorations up about three weeks, three or four weeks before Christmas came. There's always plenty of streamers, mainly homemade, loads of balloons. Everyone sent cards to everyone else. And the Christmas tree was usually picked up by my dad. It was usually a, a, a real tree because I don't think they had false Christmas trees in the early 50s. And there's little baubles and things on that. Again, mainly homemade. At school, you'd make like little angels and things like that. Talking of trees, here's my friend Anne Law talking about a part of her Christmases growing up. This, by the way, is the lady I went to Ireland with on a road trip in the summer of 2022. I did a podcast on that a while ago. Although French, as you'll hear about later, she grew up somewhere you might not expect to have much of a Christmas vibe. Even though I grew up in Tunisia, which is a Muslim country, we never had any problem finding a Christmas tree. Usually somewhere around early December, my father would go to the central market in Centre Town and pick up one. We would put it up and celebrate Christmas. I was lavished with gifts and the tree would stay up until somewhere around early February, which is when my mother would start screaming because it was, you know, falling apart and we had to put it down. So, yeah, basically this is how we did celebrate Christmas. No fancy meal, no um, no celebration of any kind really except, you know, tree and gifts. Interestingly, her mother is Vietnamese and she has a strong connection with Viet culture. When I was there at the start of this month, our hotel in Hanoi was located in the old town and next to a street which was completely lined with Christmas shops. Tinsel, ornaments, Santa Claus memorabilia and we even saw people riding motorbikes through the streets with fully decorated Christmas trees wrapped in plastic on the back of them. It made it very easy to find our hotel for sure, but it was, I don't know, it was certainly something I wasn't expecting to see there, that's for sure. Someone else who has spent many a Christmas away from the country I most associated with them is Amanda Kendall, whose podcast, The Thoughtful Travel Pod, I'd advertise more, but let's face it, she doesn't need my promotion. At some point soon, she'll reach a million downloads. I once asked her what her secret was to having a popular podcast, and she said she didn't know. Clearly, she knows. I might have to interrogate her when she visits in April. My electric toothbrush will be charged and ready. 
I grew up in Perth, Western Australia, and I live there still, but I did have a handful of Christmases um, when I lived abroad. Uh, when I lived in Japan, it was like Christmas didn't exist because it doesn't really there. But when I lived in Europe, then I finally understood Basically, I understood all the songs we'd always been singing at Christmas time. I understood what uh, snow would be like at Christmas and all of the the Christmassy stereotypes. And especially I was living in Germany where there were, of course, amazing Christmas markets. And I had a Christmas up in Finland near the Arctic Circle and met the real Santa. And so those are like what I consider to be proper Christmases. Actually, that's a solid point I want to make a bit more of. Remember earlier I was talking about Christmas songs? Have a think about all the Christmas songs and seasonal festive songs you know. Do they involve snow, cold weather, wrapping up warm? Like, one of the songs oft played at Christmas is literally called Baby It's Cold Outside. No, I'm not going to get into a discussion about that song. That's been done to death. Another is called Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, with exclamation marks. There's a theme developing here, and one that's very northern-centric. Amanda gave me the vibe from the opposite side of the world, where Christmas does not fall in the cold season. Here in Australia, the way we tend to celebrate is pretty low-key, but it's pleasant and delightful and fun. Of course, Christmas occurs during summertime here. Um, This year, Christmas just gone yesterday. It was here in Perth in the mid-30s Celsius, so pretty hot and pretty typical for a Christmas in Australia. Uh, and because of that, we uh, tend not to have like a really traditional Christmas meal anymore. When I was younger, that was super common. But these days where, um, you know, most Australians are more likely to have cold meats or seafood and salads and stuff that's not too heavy and uh, it's not too much time in a hot kitchen to prepare. But some people still do have a really traditional Christmas meal. That's pretty much how Christmas works here for for us and I think for a fair few Australians because, of course, it's summer. But it's also near the start of our very long summer school holidays. So for families, it's uh, often a time to get away and just to be, yeah, relaxed. Every time I've been to Australia, it's been in their winter. And it's still been, aside from a venture into the lowlands of the Grampian Mountains in Victoria State, warmer than it's been in the UK. It's rare and notable when temperatures reach into the 30s Celsius in the UK, especially in Scotland, where I was for the last two years. I'm of the cultural background where I pretty much melt if it gets over, you know, 24 degrees Celsius, which for my American listeners, 75 Fahrenheit. Also, remember, though, the nearest place of any significance at my latitude in North America is Edmonton, halfway up the Canadian province of Alberta. It's really quite impressive. I'm the barefoot backpacker, really. I never experienced an Australian summer, but one year my pen pal in Queensland messaged me to say that she was spending the day in the bath, a full bath of cold water, because it was the coolest place she could find. I would probably die. A question comes up, would I rather plus 40 Celsius, 104 Fahrenheit, or minus 40 Celsius, minus 40 Fahrenheit? The answer is, let's be honest, no, but instinctively I've always felt at least in cold weather you can put more clothing on, in hot weather there comes a point where it's impossible to go outside, or inside without aircon, which most houses in the UK don't have, because it never gets that hot. I'm more likely to experience plus 40 degrees, but I'd rather not do either, thank you very much. I'm fully aware minus 40 brings its own issues, but holistically it's easier to mitigate full. As an aside, UK housing isn't built for the cold either. It's designed to keep us dry, that's pretty much it. And given how many houses have issues with mould and damp, I'm wondering even about that. I am not moving to Ulaanbaatar anytime soon, a capital city that experiences both as standard. I went there once, it was the start of May. 
It was a comfortable single figure Celsius, or around 40 Fahrenheit. There was still ice in the rivers. It was fine. I was trying to see if I could go through this episode with a natural rhythm without using my section separation jingle, but I couldn't think of a natural segue. Oh wells. I want to talk a bit about Christmas markets. There's something that has seen a standard issue in Northern Europe, and I know several people who've been in places like Germany and Austria over Christmas, either as a tourist or a resident. Indeed, you've heard mention of that from Amanda earlier. My flatmate Laura lived in Freiburg for a time and loves Christmas market. You won't be hearing from her in this episode because she's in London and working too hard. We are very different people. Although she lives at almost exactly the wrong end of France, Anne Law told me about continental Christmas markets that she'd experienced. There are many Christmas markets in France. Some are more exuberant than others. The most famous one would be the one in Strasbourg, which is the city in the northern eastern part of the country. It dates back to year 1570-ish something. It has like 300 stalls scattered around all the city. The streets are decorated, the houses are, and it's very, um, very beautiful and very Christmas-like. In Toulouse, where I live, there's one as well, but a much smaller one. It's in the Place du Capitole, which is basically the center of center town. You can find, well, mostly food, toys for children, or uh, gifts, whatever gift you might be interested in. There's also a Craftman Christmas market, which is a bit farther from Saddletown, and it's more authentic. Maybe not in the Christmas-like theme things, but more natural, I'd say. I used to like to go to the Christmas market mainly for food, bite me. So I would have churros, I would have aligo. Aligo, it's a French specialty. Basically, it's cheese and potatoes, and it has a the consistency of cream. It's delicious, really. But the whole market, it is more um, a commercial thing, really. You have stalls that represent shops that are just around the city, which is not that interesting, in my opinion. But, hey, you know, food. This year, it doesn't happen every year, but this year, they also put up a small ice skating arena, which is nice. You can, of course, have the mandatory picture with Santa Claus. Also, I think it's the first time I've noticed it. There's a vegan Christmas market, which is, yeah, so weird to me. You know, it doesn't sound like Christmas to me. Some people seen so. Who am I to judge? I currently live in Greater Manchester, and for the last two years I lived in Glasgow. It's interesting to compare the two, actually, and to Birmingham, where I lived for far more years than I care to acknowledge. Glasgow's Christmas markets were pretty much only in two places. The bulk was in St George's Square in the north centre of the city by the Town Hall and Queen Street Railway Station. It's a decently sized area, but holistically it's a town square and therefore not that big a space. It's generally got an array of food and drink stalls and a Ferris wheel, which me and Laura went on last year, and it wasn't as bad as I'd feared. I don't like heights with the proviso that while a very fascinating and quite aesthetic city in close proximity, it's not the most interesting looking from a height. The other part of the Christmas market was in the south of the city centre near St Enoch subway station. There were a smaller number of stalls and a fairground ride that involved being spun around at high speed and swung a lot. Obviously, I didn't go on it. I can't think of much that would be worse. 
like, I'd rather have sex, and that's saying something. According to a news report, Manchester's Christmas market was smaller than usual. This confused me, mainly because Manchester's Christmas market this year was in about 452 separate locations across the city centre, some of which I never even made it to, including the ice rink, which apparently was in the bit of the market near the cathedral. While the bulk of the markets were in Piccadilly Gardens, and one day I'll do a pod about Manchester where I'll point out that Piccadilly Gardens and Piccadilly Railway Station are further away from each other than you might imagine, many of the wide pedestrian city streets had market stalls on them. We tended towards King Street. It was quieter and there were two large stalls next to each other, one of which sold mulled wine, the other sold craft beer. And that suited both me and Laura. One of the weird things about Manchester's Christmas market this year is that they closed on Thursday the 21st of December. I have no idea why, but you'd have thought they'd have stayed open for, you know, at least until the big Saturday before Christmas when everyone's going to be out in the city centre, but apparently not. Some bits of it were still open, like I think the ice rink was still open, but the rest of it, all gone by the Thursday evening. And that's a bit of a shame and very weird, very concerning. I was confused about that. Anyway, Nottingham is supposed to have one of the largest Christmas markets in the country, but that's probably because Nottingham's Old Market Square is pretty large for a UK city main square. The stalls there spread out down Long Row as well, one of the main pedestrianised streets in the centre that comes off the square, but that's pretty much all it is. Lots of the same things in a slightly different order. Old Market Square is also big enough for an ice rink. In summer they install a beach on it too. Most of the time it's just large pedestrianised with a water feature at one end, town hall at the other and lots of pigeons. And a Greg's that's almost, but not quite, a 24-hour pastry shop. Birmingham is a bit odd because of the way the city is designed, but traditionally the market runs the entire length of New Street, which is a distance of about 500 metres, and occupies the entirety of Victoria Square, which is where the bulk of the alcohol is. It's quite a long way from one end to the other, but it's not very wide, which causes logistical issues. At least with Manchester, there's completely separate segments of it, so it doesn't feel as crowded. My problem with Christmas markets, and I would say in the UK, but I did visit one in Vienna on my interrail trip in 2019, is that they're mostly not designed for someone like me. Apart from the food and the drink, both of which are slightly overpriced, they mostly seem to sell quite a lot of tat. Or rather, stuff that I don't think I'd ever need or want for far more money than Poundworld would sell very similar tat for that I don't buy there either. Or maybe it's because I don't have children. But small wooden decorative objects, other kinds of home decor lots of Christmas decorations to put on your tree, and artisanal cheese. Not on my radar. The market in Vienna did sell cookie cutters in the shape of feet, and I was tempted to get one for branding reasons, but didn't because I never do anything with pastry. Overall, they bore me, because I'd simply never need to buy that stuff in everyday life anyway. I don't need a Christmas-themed tea towel. I don't need a weird mantelpiece ornament, you know? And I've never liked or in fact even understood mulled wine. I know. Stop rolling your eyes, Laura. Maybe it's the neurodiversity in me, but I've always felt that some things are meant to be cold and some things are meant to be warm. Like wine is a cold drink, or at least a room temperature drink. Hot wine, the idea, is weird to me. In the same way that I know, objectively, the only difference between a hot chocolate and a chocolate milkshake is the temperature, but a cold hot chocolate irks me as much as a warm chocolate milkshake would. I feel this podcast is going to lose me followers. Meh. I could talk about the Israel-Palestine conflict if you'd prefer. No? I'm not really one for Christmas traditions, aside from going to a Weatherspoons pub for a breakfast on the morning of the 26th of December. I did this more often than you'd expect when I lived in Kirkby and Ashfield, with at least two of my friends there at different times, though I wouldn't have called it a tradition of mine then. Then more recently, me and Laura have done it whenever we've been in the same place at Christmas. 
Witherspoons are generally open normal hours on Boxing Day. I mean, some of them are open on Christmas Day. Generally open normal hours, anyway. Slash me glares at Deansgate. Christmas is for me growing up, when terribly notable or unusual. The adults in the family would open their presents late on Christmas Eve, while I, as the resident kid, would have Christmas morning devoted to opening mine. Christmas dinner, or Christmas lunch, let's be northern, would be early afternoon and involve two different types of meat, usually turkey and ham, lots of vegetables, and finished off with a Christmas pudding which in my head always seemed to be somewhere in the ultraviolet wavelengths, topped with holly and a copious amount of alcohol that was burnt off as it was brought in from the kitchen, giving a soft flame effect. Didn't eat it. Never liked Christmas pudding. Don't like stuff with fruit in it. Heading towards my teenage years, fewer people in the house meant less pomp and circumstance, while conversely my uncle had a habit of making his own pâté by then, which involved half the kitchen being placed on top of the dishes to flatten it, for reasons that are beyond me, because I've never made pâté, probably never will. Seems an awful amount of effort to me. With regard to Christmas presents, actually, as a family it turns out we're not very much in that space at all. My uncle and my mother used to have the habit of going, I bought this for myself and I'm going to pretend it's from you to each other, but I don't even think they bother doing that now. They did both buy presents for their respective pets, though, including wrapping them in wrapping paper, and, on that note, not just sending Christmas cards ostensibly from and to their pets, but in fact telling me that some of my presents were from the pets as well. My uncle's cat friend requested me on Facebook about eight years ago. I refuse to acknowledge said request. But these days, I guess because I've spent a large amount of time on my own with my friends scattered across the known world, Christmas isn't really anything special for me. I don't cook anything special just because it's Christmas Day. I just treat it like a quieter Sunday. One year I spent it removing wallpaper from my old house. Because I'm exciting like that. Such a catch, I know. Amanda tells us that even in Australia, Christmas is a time for family. Except Christmas Eve, apparently. But for me, my personal Christmas traditions are that on Christmas Eve, I go to karaoke with my um, one of my best friends. We've been doing it nearly a decade, and that's just... It wouldn't be Christmas without our Christmas Eve karaoke. And, um, and then on Christmas Day, I would usually uh, go to my mum's house and also probably see my dad uh, then or the following day if he's around. He's travelling this year, so was just my mum's and we all bring our favourite foods and uh, we eat lots, we drink drink a fair bit of uh, wine or whatever we want to drink. Um, one of my very favourite Christmas songs is Tim Minchin's White Wine in the Sun and he grew up in Perth as well and it's a very typical, it describes a typical Australian Christmas I think with all the traditions that really are just about being with family. One of the family traditions in the UK is to go to a theatre to watch a pantomime. Now, as stated earlier, according to my podcast listening stats, my biggest audience is in the USA, so for the avoidance of doubt, I ought to give a very quick overview of what a pantomime is, since it's very definitely British-centric culture at this time of year. Basically, take a fairy tale or folk tale, like Jack of the Beanstalk, Aladdin, or the story of London Mayor Dick Whittington, for some reason. Put it on a theatre stage, turn it primarily into a comedy, throwing in a very liberal number of topical or pop culture jokes and satire, make it camp, no, more, more camp than that. No, no, no. More camp. Keep going. Consider that traditionally the lead actor is a woman playing the part of a man, while there's always comic relief in the pantomime dame, which is a man playing the part of, usually, an old woman. Encourage a huge amount of audience participation. This is a genre that doesn't just break the fourth wall, it pulls it down with a wrecking ball and uses the rubble to build roads into the watching crowds, and then market it at children. But include many not-so-subtle jokes for parents. 
on that note, it's weird that although adult-only pantomimes exist, they're generally not very good. Most towns and cities in the UK will have a pantomime performing through December and touching into January, and the more prestigious theatres will have both television actors, usually from soap operas, or comedians, and local celebrities, for example, you know, local radio presenters, taking the parts. All good, clean fun. But I think it loses something if you're not watching in a group. Speaking of children, my mother reminded me of a tradition that still happens today. We go to the grottos. In Liverpool, there was always about five or six uh, you'd go to. Father Christmas was always there, sitting on his little throne with his little helpers. You'd get a, some sort of present from them. You know, it's usually just colouring pencils or things like that. Or your parents would buy the present and would be wrapped up and given it to you. That was the go-to thing, always went to the grotto and loads of Christmas decorations in the towns. I think they were all celebrating because there was no more war. You know, even 10, 15 years after, there was a lot of bomb damage in Liverpool. All this brings us to New Year, which at the time of podding is still to occur. I was having a discussion today about New Year with some of the people I know on the Tickling Discord server, actually, so it's something that's in my mind at present. I've never been one for going out at New Year, partly because I'm an introvert and everywhere outside is going to be rammed and expensive, and I'm simply not going to have a good or pleasurable time, but also because, I guess, for me, New Year isn't anything actually that significant. It's like a birthday. It's an arbitrary time that we create that defines a period artificially. When you think about it, every day is a new year, as it's exactly a year since the last time that date occurred. May the 29th isn't a terribly exciting day, even if I know three people who celebrate their birthday on that day, so it's not a day chosen at random, but every 29th of May is exactly a year after the previous one. Just because we don't, as a culture, add one to the value of the year on that date doesn't mean it's any more or less significant than January the 1st. I don't need the year to change in order to go out to the pub, this might be evident from this podcast. Now, New Year house parties are a different thing. Again, as we discussed on Discord. I've not done very many of them because one of the snags of having a friend group that are geographically disparate is that, well, they're geographically disparate. But I've done a few and they're far more pleasant and accessible than going out for New Year. For me, it's not specifically a New Year thing anyway. I just like spending time around my friends in a physical way rather than a virtual way. And it makes a change when I do because it doesn't happen very often. This seems to have been something my mother traditionally agreed with too. New Year, we always used to have a big party, the family, because with my dad having a load of sisters, we'd all meet up and have a party. And there was always parties going on around, you know, around the road, neighbours would have them and all sorts of things. I don't have any traditions around New Year. There were several years in the late 2010s where my New Year would be sent at my theoretical ex-girlfriend's house, cat-sitting, while she went to her dad's house for New Year with her disparate inner family. I had no problem with this, which might tell you all you need to know about my feelings around social interaction. And my ex-girlfriend. Obviously, I grew up in a culture that definitely does, or at least did, have New Year traditions, such as First Footing, where a dark-haired man, and it is always a man, going outside before the time, and then knocking at the door to be let in after it turned midnight. The idea seeming to be that if the first person you met or came inside was dark-haired, you'd have good luck throughout the forthcoming year, and if they were fair-haired, then you would not. Sounds slightly historically racist to me, if we're being honest. Fortunately, my family had one in the form of my uncle. Wikipedia suggests it's a holdover from being wary of Vikings. Speaking of my uncle, he being a Morris dancer means he has a tradition of doing some off-season New Year dances to welcome in the New Year, 
at local pubs, obviously. I say off-season. Morris dancing itself tends to be a summertime thing, kicking off with early morning dances up a hill on May Day. But during the winter, the same group of people do mummers plays. These are more acted out rather than danced, in a very casual and audience participatory way, where they perform one of a number of traditional types of storyline involving heroes and villains. It's not dissimilar to pantomime, if we're being honest. His troupe tend to go for St George versus the Turkish Knight. Sounds slightly historically racist to me, if we're being honest. They go from pub to pub performing them, and much beer is drunk. I asked Amanda about traditions in Australia. She gave me precisely one. See if you can guess what it is. And then New Year's Eve here is kind of just an extension of having fun, but probably having fun with friends rather than family. There are usually some fireworks to be had round and about the place, uh, but especially the the famous ones in Australia are the, the Sydney uh, Sydney Harbour fireworks. So they have you know a really huge display uh, coming off the Sydney Harbour Bridge and in the harbour and around the Opera House, and they have a kids version at nine pm which is great, I think. And um, and then, you know, the midnight ones. Of course, here in Perth, the midnight ones in Sydney are actually um, time corrected, 9pm here. So I kind of like that because I like to get to bed early, but my son usually insists that we stay up till midnight. Uh, but yeah, we don't have any particularly important traditions around New Year's, apart from setting a bunch of New Year's resolutions that we will probably break pretty quickly. Other than that, that's New Year's here. I've never been one for fireworks. It's literally watching your money blow up in smoke. Amanda there mentioned resolutions. I've not done that in years, because ADHD makes the concept rather pointless. What do you mean you have to stick to a routine and consciously do things differently on a regular basis? I'm out. Well, that's all for this pod. Join me again next year for another adventure beyond Beyond the Bruce. Until then, remember, if it actually was Christmas every day, nothing would get done. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Don't forget to sign up for my newsletter and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. <laughs>